1 Corinthians 15. Uh, what we do every Sunday is gather to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship is just our response uh, to who God is. It's a response of sorrow over sin, of joy in the grace and mercy of God. It's, uh, it's a response of gathering and being one with God's people. By the way, I know it's hot in here. Our best people are working on it. Uh, Jason is a, an expert at, at temperature control. So it says it's 90 degrees. So we're, we're not trying to cook you out. Is that you, Jason? Or Jay, did you do that? 95 back there? Wow, I believe it. It's, it's toasty. Okay, what was I saying? Okay, we're here to worship. So uh, if you're going to respond, here's my point. If you're going to respond to who God is and what God has done, he first has to reveal himself and his ways and his words and his works to us. And that's why every Sunday we open up the scripture and try to spend a significant portion of time uh, just learning what has God revealed to us in his word. And we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians for about the last year. We find ourselves in the middle of chapter 15 today. We'll begin reading verse 12, and I'll just say one comment by way of introducing this text, uh, that in this particular passage, uh, Paul uh, begins and ends uh, on the same note. He is uh, just considering a, a miserable, uh, unreal, impossible possibility. What if Christ were not raised? And then in the middle of our text, he affirms a conviction. Christ is risen from the dead. So with those comments uh, as introduction, let's begin reading in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. And before we go to prayer, I just realized I don't have my sermon notes with me. They're down on the front pew, and I don't think I can make it through without them, so I'm going to grab them. Thank you, hon. All right, let's pray. Father, we feel so torn this morning because we know that Christ is risen from the dead. And we know that one day all those principalities and powers that have arrayed themselves against your son, that have rebelled against you, are going to be destroyed completely forever and that you'll wipe away every tear and that all those who are in Jesus will live forever with you in the new creation. We know that. But we still hear the whispers of our flesh, the whispers of the enemy, calling us to question, to doubt your goodness, calling us to question your victory and your power. And Father, we see the effects of that all around our community, all around our world today, that Satan is still raging, and that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, Father. And so we pray for your victory. We pray for the completeness of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, and specifically, we pray for that battlefield of caring for the orphans and the widows. Lord, so many in our community, in our county, uh, have uh, harmed their own children and, and uh, Lord, whether they intended to do so or not, there they, they, they've done so. And, and uh, so we've got these vulnerable kids, and, and your people have, have been deployed to uh, support them and to, to care for them and to uh, be, uh, be your hands and feet uh, to these vulnerable children. And, and so I pray that you would support, through your church, the ministry of Hope Local, the ministry of the individual families who have been called to foster care and those who do respite care and those who support these families. And Lord, I pray that you would search our hearts and that you would show us what is it that you're calling us to do. By your plan and your wisdom, no, no one of us can do everything. That's your, that's your plan. You want us to do our part, our little piece of what you're doing in the world. And so I pray that you'd show us what that is. But Father, I pray that uh, most of all, you would 
draw our attention to the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead and that you would allow the cross and the empty tomb to shape the way that we walk forward in this life and that you would cause us to walk in obedience to you. And so, Father, show us wonderful things out of your word today so that we might live lives that please you. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the wonderful things about living here in Mineral Wells, Texas, is the fact that some of the best rock climbing in the region is located just to our east in Penitentiary Hollow at Mineral Wells State Park. I'm sure most of you have been there and explored those uh, little canyons and cliffs, and maybe you've even done a little rock climbing yourself. Uh, But if you haven't, it's worth the trip. You need to go check it out. Well, about a year ago, uh, David Cook uh, invited Austin and myself to Penitentiary Hollow to do some repelling. He said, I've got this gear. I know how to do it. Do you want to come and and I'll show you what to do and and we can go repelling? And I played it cool. I acted like it was no big deal, that that would just be a fun thing that I do all the time. But really, the truth is, I get a little nervous at the edge of a cliff. My mind starts to race. And for some reason, I, I always, in my mind's eye, I can always see that one little bee. You know, I don't know if I'm the only person like this, but the bee that starts to kind of attack you while you're right there by the edge of the cliff. And you're swatting at the bee, and you're trying to get out of the way, and you're dodging, and then you slip on the rock, and then... You fall over the cliff. That's just immediately where my mind goes whenever I think about standing at the edge of a cliff. So when someone says, let's go repelling, my palms begin to sweat and my heart begins to race and I have to act like those things aren't happening because my son is standing right there and I've got to, you know, act like I can handle it. But anyway, in spite of my irrational fears, I said, sure, we'd love to go. And so we did. And David had all the right equipment, the ropes that could hold our weight and the the clips and the carabiners that uh, had all these fail safes built into them and harnesses constructed out of sturdy nylon straps and hefty buckles and you take all of that gear and you walk out to the edge of the rock uh, face and, and you and you find a little metal anchor stuck in the rock and you fasten yourself to that little anchor that's fastened to the rock uh, i'm not sure who makes these anchors I'm not sure who makes sure that they're in good working condition, but as I began to get ready for my first descent, and I'm, you know, hyperventilating, I realized, okay, I trust my friend, and I trust all this gear and all this equipment, but I've got to trust this little piece of metal. See, the fact is, no matter how strong the rope, no matter how sturdy the harness, no no matter how reliable the gear, If there's any deficiency at all in that one little piece of metal, that connection that it has to the rock, then none of those other things matter. So when I clipped myself to that anchor, you better believe I tested it. I pulled on it with all my strength. I lifted with the legs because I wanted to make sure it was going to hold my weight. And I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. You may have the right gear, spiritually speaking, Like you might have all the theological knowledge of what the Bible teaches. You might live an ethically pure life. 
You might have a great family. You might have an exemplary character. I could keep going. But if your faith is not fastened to an anchor that can hold you for eternity, then you're going to fall and you're going to perish. But as Paul makes plain in this passage, there is an anchor. A real singular event in time and space on which we can anchor our every hope. This, this morning, the apostle offers us a very simple reminder to believers and a very simple and bracing call to those who are doubting, to those who don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, to do one simple thing. Fasten your faith to the reality of the resurrection. Fasten your faith to the reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus of Nazareth breathed again, that his very body was set free from the corruption of the fall and that he is alive today and will one day return to claim his crown is more than sufficient to hold you up and keep you from falling into oblivion, to rescue you from death, though Satan rages and all the demons of hell gnash their teeth. You can stand in the evil day if you are fastened to the fact of the life of Christ. Last week we saw that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is critical. We learned that we must never let go. We must never forget. We must never underestimate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, in today's text, Paul is going to take that focus and he's going to focus us even more to that second critical event, not just the cross, but the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to explain and show us how critical, how necessary it is that we hold fast to the reality of the resurrection. So what he's going to do is he's, he's going to do essentially two things in this text. He's going to consider what if those who don't believe are correct? What if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? What would that mean? It's a sort of counterfactual, you might say. And then he's going to focus us on a conviction. Christ is risen from the dead. So we're going to follow that logic as well. So consider in the first place for a moment that Jesus is still dead. Consider what it would be like if there were no resurrection. What would that mean for us today if that were true? This was apparently an important question for the Corinthian church because incredibly, amazingly, there were some who were saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul says as much in verse 12. We weren't there, of course. We don't know the specifics of how this deadly doctrine came to be uttered in the church of God, but apparently these confused Christians and those who were leading them astray thought uh, that, that, that there was no big deal to just utter these untruths. You know, you only live once. There is no resurrection. Once you die, that's it. And Paul says, wait a second, let's consider for just a moment if that were true. What would also flow from that? If that's true and there's no resurrection from the dead, it seems to me that there are at least five entailments from that. Consider, first of all, that if, if the resurrection of Christ did not happen, that would mean in the first place that the message of Christ is worthless. That the message of Christ is worthless. And notice Paul's comments in verses 14 and 15. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, there, if it is true that the dead are not raised. I, I touched on this briefly last week, but consider again what we're left with if Christ isn't raised. Then the words of the apostles are, are not just the utterances of crazy men, of the deranged, but are in fact misrepresentations of the Creator God. That means that everything that Paul says across 13 New Testament letters is utterly untrustworthy. Not only that, but consider the world-changing words of Jesus himself. Whether you're a Christian or not, any honest person looking at the history of the world would have to admit that the words of Jesus of Nazareth have inspired millions and millions of people and literally changed the world. No one is more influential than Jesus of Nazareth, and it's not even close. But if he is dead today, then all of that is built, it's a house of cards. His words ring hollow. Well-known British author C.S. Lewis used to say that when you really take the time to read the four Gospels and you consider the actual words and the works of Jesus Christ, then you cannot think that he's just a good person. Many people think that. Well, Jesus, he's a great guy. He's inspired many people. You can't think that if you really take seriously what Jesus said in the Gospels. So Lewis reasons either Jesus is a complete liar, and if he's a liar, he can't be trusted, or he's a total lunatic, and if he's crazy, then he can't be trusted. Or he is, in fact, who he claims to be. He is the Lord, because Jesus claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He claims to uh, have the right to demand the worship of the people of God. And if any of that is to be taken seriously, then we can't just say he's a good guy. But here's the thing, if Jesus died like everybody else and his body rotted away like everyone else's does, then he was just a peasant who got too big for his britches and he was executed like countless other rebels, rebels with delusions of, of grandeur. And if Jesus wasn't raised, his life was a waste, his followers are idiots, and his words are worthless. But let me ask you, when you read the words of Christ, and they fire your soul. Do you think you're reading the words of a deranged freak? Don't they jump from the page as the inspired utterances of the utterly holy God? You know that those are the words of God. But if Christ isn't raised, then they're the words of a madman. If Christ is not risen, then the message of Christ is worthless. Secondly, notice that if Christ is not raised, then you and I are still in our sin. We're still in our sin. As Paul says in verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Nothing in this world can change the fact that God is holy and I am not. Nothing can change that. That is the truth. That is a fact. Think about how hard the world works. Think about how hard you work to minimize this fact. All of our energies are focused on justifying ourselves before an accusing conscience. Even our own conscience accuses us. 
lying, greed, dishonoring our parents, idolatry, sexual immorality, even theft. We're constantly trying to reframe these things in psychological or therapeutic terms or make excuses for them or give reasons why it's okay for us to engage in these things because our consciences are constantly accusing us and telling us, you've got a problem. You are guilty before a holy God. You've fallen short of the glory of God. Think long and hard about this. The accusations of your conscience are not mistaken. They are not the misfirings of a chemical system that's evolved over millions of years because you're just a a bag of chemicals. No. That is the gift of God. That conviction is designed by the Creator to tell you something is wrong. Because you're not primarily a physical being. You're not primarily a psychological being. You're primarily a relational, spiritual being. You are primarily a person who is created in the image of God. And you are created to bear that image in the world. And you know, late at night when you're lying awake and you're all alone in the stillness, that you are guilty before the consuming fire of God's holy justice. And if you think it's bad to fall short of your own expectations, then think of what it would be to stand before the judge of all the earth. Now we know that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that because, not because of the works of righteousness that I've done, but because of the work of Christ in obeying all of the demands of the law and in going to the cross on my behalf, that we are justified in Christ. That those who believe in Jesus stand before him holy, saints, accepted in the beloved because of the work of Jesus. But if Christ is not raised, then there is absolutely no reason to think that this is the case. We're still in our sins. If Jesus is dead, then he's just a guy. A dead man is just that. He cannot do anything for you. He cannot make up for the infinite injury that we've inflicted on the one who made us. He can't even make a dent in our sentence of death because he's just a normal guy. If Christ is not raised, then there's nothing waiting for us but terror. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the message of Christ is worthless, then we're still in our sins. But thirdly, notice that if Christ is not alive today, then there is no hope in your grief. There's no hope in your grief. I see this in two places in our passage today. In verse 18, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That means they're gone. They're done. That's it. You will never see them again. That's the end. The Corinthians were still a young church, but even they had buried their share of beloved Christian friends and family members, comforting one another with the truth that they would see them again. And and it's this reality that likely stands behind this other practice that they mentioned, that Paul mentions later in the passage uh, in verse 29. Uh, Paul talks about this idea that people are baptized on behalf of the dead. Uh, you might have read that passage earlier in the week and thought, what in the world is he talking about? We don't have baptism on behalf of the dead. And, and it sounds like uh, what Paul is saying is that people are getting baptized to sort of help the dead get into heaven. But that's not what he's saying at all. Uh, there are literally dozens of possible ways to read this verse, but most recent commentators follow New Testament scholar G.G. G. Finley in concluding that these people had been converted and baptized because of the influence of a dying believer. It's kind of like uh, 
you probably know of examples of this. A, a person who is in Christ, who's faithful to the Lord, is on their deathbed, and they say, you know, I've been praying for my nephew. I've been praying for my granddaughter, and I just want them to know that Christ is good, that, that, that forgiveness is offered, and I want them to accept the free gift. And, and through their influence, that person comes to Christ and is converted and gets baptized and begins to walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you might translate the verse, what do people who get baptized because of the testimony of their now deceased relations hope to accomplish? The implication is that what they are looking forward to is the day that they will be reunited with their loved ones in the new creation. So what's happening in the church in Corinth is this. Someone is in Christ and they pass away and through their testimony, another person says, I need what they had. I need the Lord Jesus Christ. I need the hope of the resurrection. And so they get converted and baptized in hopes of seeing that person again. And here's what Paul's saying. If Christ isn't raised, then none of that makes any sense at all. And you understand this if you've experienced loss. I can't tell you how many dear saints I myself have laid to rest in my short few years of ministry whose dying wish would have been that their relative or their spouse might call out to Christ in faith. But if Christ isn't raised, then the hope that we carry in the midst of grief, the conviction that there will be a reunion, that we will feel the embrace of our mother or our father or our wife or our child who has gone on to eternity before us, that hope fades like a dream. If Christ is not raised, then our grief is without hope. If Christ isn't raised, then fourthly, all of the trials of ministry are pointless. Look at verse 30. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? He says, I die every day. I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Uh, That seems to me to be a figurative reference to the trials that Paul experienced in Ephesus at the hand of Demetrius the silversmith. A pagan craftsman with lots to lose had nearly killed him in Acts chapter 19. And he's writing 1 Corinthians from that same city and perhaps experiencing some of the same trials. And he says, why am I living like this? Why would I put up with being beaten? Why would I suffer the rejection of my countrymen, my own family? Why would I travel around with nowhere to live? Why would I have no money? Why is it that I put up with these difficult church members in places like Corinth? Why why would I have to deal with these ambitious rival apostles and forego marriage and live alone and preach a message that makes no difference at all. What a waste. What is the point of serving Jesus if Jesus is dead? A dead Jesus doesn't care whether you volunteer to clean the bathrooms at church or whether you tithe or whether you go on mission trips. How can he care? He's not alive. If Christ is not raised, then ministry is pointless. And finally, if Christ isn't raised, then this life is all there is. This life is all there is. Notice what he says in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's quoting uh, the 22nd chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah 22, the prophet is uh, speaking against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They're surrounded in that moment by the enemies of God. And they can tell that the writing is on the wall, so, uh, so to speak, and their, uh, their life is about to come to an end. And so instead of turning to the Lord, instead of repenting from their sinful lifestyle, instead of saying, uh, we need to turn to Christ, we need, we need to turn to God, 
they say, well, that's, the, that's it, that's the end. Let's, uh, we have all this food, we've got all this drink, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Our enemies are going to come in and kill us, and that will be the end. They ignore the discipline of God. But if Christ is not risen from the dead, then that worldview, that mentality makes total sense. It doesn't matter what happens after we die, because that's it. So let's eat and drink and just live it up right now. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then the message of Jesus is worthless. We're still stuck in sin. There's no hope in the midst of grief. Ministry is pointless. And we better get all we can out of this life because the moment we get in that car accident, the moment cancer takes its toll, the moment our heart stops or a blood clot reaches the brain, that's it. Nothing but judgment, nothing but misery and darkness and decay and the terrible crush of condemnation for all of eternity with no end in sight. It's a bleak possibility. Christ is not raised. We're of all men most to be pitied. You know, a lot of believers, in spite of these realities, live as though Paul's logic doesn't make any sense. Have you noticed this? He says, if Christ isn't risen today, then we're of all men most to be pitied. But many Christians nowadays would disagree with Paul's logic because we've developed a faith, a sort of cultural Christianity in which the costs of the Calvary Road have been mitigated, but we still enjoy the trappings of religion and the comfort of knowing we have a ticket to heaven. Here's what I mean. We have developed a faith in which we can confidently say, hey, if the Bible's true, if Jesus is alive today, if God is going to hold me accountable for sin, then Jesus has me covered. I'm going to heaven when I die. But if it's not true, I want to make sure I live and get as much out of this life as I possibly can. Paul says, if Christ isn't raised, we're of all men most miserable. But the way that we live as Christians today, if Christ isn't raised, I guess that would be all right. That's not good. Why is it that so-called Christians lack obedience to the clear commands of Scripture? Why is it that so-called Christians act no different from those of other religions? Why is it that we professing Christians so often refuse to give sacrificially of our time and our talents and our treasures? Why is it that we lack true joy but allow our mood to swing from one extreme to another on the basis of circumstance? There's a very simple reason why. It's because we don't really believe that Jesus is alive. Or at least we don't believe it very much. Certainly not enough for it to change our thinking and our lifestyle. We don't actually really believe that one day very soon we're going to die and enter the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and that we will one day be raised with him. Maybe we believe it enough to pay lip service enough to affirm it when the preacher says it, enough to say sure when we read it in the Bible, but enough to soar with joy, enough to sacrificially obey. It's sort of like when you were a kid and you were first learning how to dive into a lake or a swimming pool. Uh, some of you are so coordinated you did on the first try. Okay, I wasn't that way. I had to take a, a few tries. And what do we do? You know you're supposed to leap into the water head first, 
which means your feet have to leave the side of the pool, right? But at that last moment, what happens? We, our bodies, we, we, we're leaning forward, we're going towards the water, but our feet want to hang on to the side of the pool. And so what ends up happening is gravity takes over and smack, belly flop on the surface of the water. The fact of the matter is, and not to be too corny, that many Christians' lives are little more than a flop. And the reason why is because we want to leave one foot in the world instead of jumping into the reality of the resurrection. Isn't that true? Haven't you found this in your own life? Where, where you're going to decide that that's, that's, it doesn't work anymore. That, that you can forgo the pleasures of the present and you can forgo the acceptance of your peers. You can forgo the comfort of riches. You can say no to all the things in the world and say yes to Jesus and truly experience the joy and the fulfillment and the satisfaction of living as a real believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and fastening your faith to that resurrection reality. Jesus didn't intend your life to be an exercise in risk management. He, he didn't give you the gospel so that you would hedge your bets and put a little bit of your confidence in the world and a little bit of your confidence in him. He wants all of your confidence in him. The life of Christ is, is not, well, it's that treasure, isn't it, that, that Jesus talks about that's hidden in a field. Remember that man, he, he finds the treasure hidden in the field, and what does he do? He goes out and joyfully sells everything that he has and buys that field because he knows he has much more value, much more treasure in that field than he had it ever before. It's that costly pearl that a man who searches and finds gladly sells everything that he has and buys that costly gem. Jesus, if he is alive, is that treasure. And he's worth saying no to everything else. In order to have him, he's worth it. Fasten your faith to the reality of the resurrection because without this reality, we are of all men most miserable. You say, okay, I, I, I understand if Christ isn't really raised from the dead, then it's sort of like we're on the Titanic and we're polishing the brass on the Titanic. That doesn't make sense. We, we need to eat and drink and, and just enjoy life because that's it. But Christ is risen from the dead, and I, I need to understand how does that reality, amazing as it is, how does it actually impact me 2,000 years later? Like, how does it change my life? And so Paul, in the middle of this passage, in the core of this passage, is going to turn our attention to that very question. He moves from that counterfactual, what if Christ never rose from the dead, to a conviction in verses 20 through 28, and notice his declaration in verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, it's happened. So what's the significance of that reality? Well, it seems to me that in these verses, he expounds on two impacts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One is a covenantal impact, and the other is a cosmic impact. So notice the covenantal impact in verses 20 through 22. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, Paul says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's what Paul's saying. We like to think of ourselves in modern America as individual units, unconnected from other people, 
maybe we're part of a family, but we're really autonomous individual units. And the Bible teaches, no, that's not true. You're part of a family. You're part of a group of people. And you actually have a covenant relationship with God, with the God who made you. And there is actually a person who stands as your representative in that covenant relationship with God. And for most people, that covenant representative is a man named Adam. We find uh, in the first chapter, uh, first chapters of the Bible, that Adam, the first man, was given the, the opportunity to represent us as our covenant head. God blessed him, and he gave him all of the things that he needed to fulfill the demands of the covenant, and he made it very clear to Adam, this is what I want you to do. I want you to fill the earth and subdue it, and, and I want you to be fruitful and multiply, and there's a tree in the middle of the garden. I don't want you to eat from that tree. He, he didn't leave any doubt as to what it was supposed to look like to fulfill the demands of the covenant. But of course, Adam did not do so. He had a clean slate, but he did not use that clean slate to obey. He was not a capable, obedient, pleasing image bearer whose offspring would enjoy the blessings of that obedience and unbroken fellowship. Adam broke the covenant. He disobeyed God's demands. And since all of us come from Adam, then our own relationship with God is broken and we share in the death that resulted from Adam's sin. So in other words, as long as we belong to the people of Adam, as long as we are human sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, as long as Adam's actions represent us as our covenant head, then we belong to the realm of death. It's not just your choices that leave you at odds with the God who made you. It's, your, it's the fact that you were born into this family. You've got a problem even just at the moment of your birth because you were born as a son of Adam. So what's, not, what's needed is not just individual rescue, individual forgiveness, but a new covenant relationship. We need a new covenant representative. We need someone to, to fulfill the demands of the covenant for us. We need someone to perfectly bear the image of the Father. We need a new Adam. We need someone who resists the temptations of the devil on our behalf. And, and so if you read through the entire Bible, you see this. It's a story of anticipation. Is God going to send someone else to be that new Adam? Is it going to be Abraham? No, it's not Abraham. Abraham failed just like Adam did. Is it going to be Moses? No, even Moses fails. What about the nation of Israel? Is the nation of Israel going to succeed where all these other people have failed? No, the nation of Israel fails as well. They don't resist the temptation either. And so and so, uh, and so on and so forth, all the way through the Bible, it's the story of one failure after another, sealing our fate as condemned to die. And by the way, if you or I were in that position, we would fail as well. But then Jesus comes, and he's not a son of Adam. He's made in the image of God as a human man, but he's born of a virgin, a second Adam, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's tempted by Satan too, but he passes the test and he becomes a new covenant head, a new representative. And because he fulfills the covenant's demands and because he defeats death, uh, just like death passed on all of us because of the sin of Adam, life passes on all those who are in Christ because of the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what that means, as Paul makes clear, is that the only hope for any of us is if we pass from one family to the other, if we go from being a part of the family of Adam to being a part of the family of God in Christ, who succeeded on our behalf. And if it's true 
that Christ is creating this new covenant people, then that means, that means he is only the first of countless millions of people who will one day rise with a new body incorruptible from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep because all those who are in him will rise as well. Today we're all dealing with death. I'm sure you've had this thought. You know, it might be so-and-so's last Thanksgiving. It might be so-and-so's last Christmas. Maybe you're wondering if this is your last Christmas. But the hope that we have in Christ is that he is only the first of many who will live forever in the body. The dead in Christ will rise. The question is, do you belong to the dead and decaying family of the first Adam? Or do you have the life of the second Adam? Because without that, you're, hope, you're without hope. You've got to be transferred from one family to the other. You have to have the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't get there on your own. One family we're joined to at our natural birth. The other happens when we are born again. One family relationship comes through natural relations, the other through adoption into God's family. One leaves us legally condemned, the other leaves us legally justified. One leads to corruption and squandered potential, the other leads to life and fulfilled humanity. So, so here's the point, and it's very, very clear. You must, must, must come to Christ. You must come to the risen one. You must call out to him and say, please forgive me. Please accept me. Please give me the free gift of your life, your, for, your forgiveness, and cause me to become a part of your family. Now is Christ risen from the dead, and that has a covenantal impact, so fasten your faith to the reality of the resurrection, but notice that there is a cosmic impact as well. Paul says that when we are raised with him, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. He is going to rule until all of his enemies are under his feet. You know, I think we Christians tend, don't you agree, to have a small vision for the work of Christ. We think individually, but Christ is doing something on a cosmic scale. He is gaining a victory that, that, that extends to the, the entire universe and, and, and to the entire spiritual realm. He is defeating the principalities and powers. He's going to rule until all of his enemies are under his feet. There is a cosmic war that has been raging since the beginning. A, a wicked army has been assaulting the rule of God since Adam and Eve were in the garden. Organized in rebellion against the creator, spewing lies, assaulting the glory of God, gorging on the blood of those who fall, loving it when those who bear the image of God embrace death instead of embracing life. Countless evil spiritual hordes have rejoiced whenever they thought that they were gaining ground. And then the enemy saw his chance when the Son of God, the big prize, the boss, came into the world and began to represent people as the new Adam. And what did Satan do? He went into Judas, the betrayer himself, and he made sure that the wicked rulers of this world would take the Son of God and beat him, nail him to a cross, and kill him. He made sure of it, and the adversary licked his chops and opened his jaws hungrily to devour the Son of God. 
But in the blindness of his rebellion, he got way more than he bargained for because it was impossible for death to hold him. It was impossible, and on a Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, Satan was skewered, and the principalities and powers howled in agony as their destruction was sealed in the victory of the Son of God. He rose from the dead. So fasten your faith to the reality of the resurrection because it is the first fruits of the cosmic victory of Christ over every enemy. Don't believe for a second that the Son of God will fail. Don't believe for a second that evil is going to prevail. Don't fret yourself because of the wiles of the enemy because the victory has already been won. Christ's claim is secure. It's done. It's finished. And one day, not long from now, the dragon himself is going to be carried away by the holy angels of God, and he is going to be cast along with all those who follow him into the lake of fire, and the king will claim the victory. It's going to happen. You can bank on it. And if it's true that his victory is sure over the principalities and the powers beings far more powerful than you or me, then what right do we have to walk around down in the dumps and depressed all the time and like, I don't know if things are going to go okay. You know, look at the way the world is going. It's so bad. No. Rise up. Take up the armor of the Lord Jesus and fight. Fight sin. Fight unbelief. Fight the love of the world and be victorious today because the anchor to which we're fastened isn't going to move. It's solid. It's secure. The rock isn't going to crumble. You are fastened to a living, invincible warrior who has already died. He's already defeated death. He's already done the work. Your condemnation is already carried out. It's it's done. There's no more left. So Christians, stop feeling sorry for yourself and grab hold of the victory in Jesus. You're not dead yet. And and when you die, you're not going to be dead for very long. Every joy, every pleasure is yours in Christ except for the deceitful, destructive pleasures of sin. No good thing will he withhold from you who are in Christ. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. All I'm saying is let's start living like Jesus is alive. Because he surely is and we will live with him. So I'll leave you the same way Paul leaves the Corinthians in this passage. Wake up from your spiritual stupor. Stop sinning. Stop spending time under the influence of those whose destiny is death and fasten your faith to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's do it.